Hi, everybody. Welcome to Forestbrook. Um, I'm uh, Kevin Armstrong, and this is Elizabeth Pierce. For those who are visiting us here today, great to have you with us here today. We're in a series uh, in the midst of Ephesians on what it is to be the people of God and understanding our identity, and we're in a passage right now where we're looking at Christian ethics that flow out of this principle of living a life of love like Jesus, which we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And today we're going to be talking about those verses that deal with husbands and wives in that context. Uh, I am thrilled to have Elizabeth with me, not just because she is one of our speakers in this congregation and uh, we all know her and love her and appreciate uh, her for uh, who she is, um, but also because uh, in her profession she is a counselor, um, master of social work, and works in this field uh, with families all the time. So I know that she'll bring not just heaven's wisdom, but also some of her own to this conversation as we, uh, as we go through it today. But before we begin, let us surrender to the Lord and uh, submit ourselves to him. Elizabeth, would you pray for us? Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to come here this morning and meet with you. We come here and uh, choose to lay down ourselves and um, to open ourselves up to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you come and be present here among us? May it be your words that are spoken by Kevin and I this morning. Mm -hmm. May you be brought glory because of what we talk about. I ask that we would all leave here having had a chance to meet with you and having had a chance to better understand who we are in you and how that is to practically look in the relationships that we have here on this earth. So we give you this time, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you freely. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you might wonder why we're calling a message on husband and wife relationships. Uh, if it doesn't look like Jesus, it's not Jesus. Um, as Elizabeth and I were talking and preparing for the message, uh, the, the thing that I wanted to stress, and, and I know she gets this, and, and we've been trying to say to a congregation over and over again, that the, the basic ethic of the Christian life is to live a life of love like Jesus and give yourself away for others. That's what it says in Ephesians. That's what, that's what Paul says. You are in Christ. God's done all these wonderful things for you. Now go and live a life of love like Jesus and give yourself away for others. You can sum everything up with that. Mm -hmm. So if you know nothing else about what it is to be a follower of Jesus, know that. Try to do that and you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Right? St. Augustine said, you know, that he said, you know, love God and do as you please. And that's a scandalous statement, but if we really understand what he means, and if we look at the simplicity that Paul has, you know, Christianity is, is not complicated. It's hard. It's difficult because you've got to die in the process, but it's not complicated. Mm -hmm. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and now he says, now go and live for others. Go live a life of love, just like Jesus, and give yourself away for others. It's that simple. And so a real easy rubric to look at any issue of Christian ethics is this. If it doesn't look like Jesus, it's not Jesus. Yeah. Right? Because that's the bottom line. That's the summation. So when we look at this passage in Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33, it's important for us to remember that. Remember that, that 521, we'll talk about that in a second, 521, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, is the ordering principle of what Paul's about to say, because he then gives three examples, three concrete examples of what he means by that. Husbands and wives submitting themselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Fathers and children submitting themselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
and slave owners and slaves, household owners and household slaves, submitting themselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it flows through each of those examples. But before we get into this, Elizabeth and I both really felt that we needed to provide a disclaimer at the very get-go. When I was in Montreal and I was doing my social work courses, I took a course in marriage and family therapy, and I was surprised when I read in the textbook that one of that, according to the textbook, things that were being taught to to uh, you know um, people in social work programs at university. I was at the University of Waterloo at the time, and and the course was basically saying you know that there are these societal factors that support and keep in place a culture that allows for domestic violence. And one of those factors in the textbook was Christianity. And I was shocked by that. I was, I was astounded. I, I was hurt by that as a Christian pastor that people, that social work students were being taught that Christianity was one of the societal factors that perpetuated a culture that allowed for domestic violence. And so I contacted the, uh, the National Family Clearinghouse on Domestic Violence, which was in Ottawa at the time. And I wrote them a letter and I said, hey, this is who I am. I'm a pastor and I'm studying social work and I, and I saw this in this course. I, I'm, I'm alarmed. Tell me more. And they actually called me back. And when they called me back, they were, they were surprised. They said, and I'm not, this is no lie. They said, we have never had a pastor contact us to ask us about this issue before. Who are you? <laughs> and they were, they were both thrilled, and, and at the same time, they just said, we can't get over that a church is interested in this. Churches don't talk about this. Which is one of the reasons why the culture persists. Which is one of the reasons why the problem persists. Not just our understanding of Scripture, but our avoidance of the issue. And I, when I, went, I went back to our church and I said, we will not avoid this issue. And not only that, but it's, it's, a, it's a practice that we will never abide. Mm -hmm. Under no circumstances. Yeah. So that, that's one of the reasons why when we look at these passages, we have to put out a disclaimer because these passages in Christianity and especially among us as conservative evangelicals, these passages have been twisted and used to subjugate and abuse women and families for hundreds of years. And that was never God's intent, was it? No, and I can't help but think that it um, grieves God's heart when his word is taken and twisted to support mistreatment and abuse of the very people that he sent his son to die for, that he loved so much that he was willing to give that sacrifice. It doesn't make sense, and I can only imagine how much it grieves him when that happens. So we want to be really clear to you this morning that as we unpack these verses, which are rife with possible controversy and many different kinds of interpretations, that you know that our understanding of these verses and of the words submission and headship within these verses does not support the misuse to justify control or abuse or diminishment of anyone, because that doesn't look like Jesus. Absolutely. The other thing that we want to mention is that in a, in a sermon series like these, 
right? For those of us who are married or even any, anybody, you know, when we, when we look at these passages and you hear me say, talk to the husbands, you hear Elizabeth talk to the wives, it's so easy for us to think about our partner and go, she needs to hear that. <laughs> or why isn't he more like Jesus, right? So we hear them and we hear them on behalf of the other. And so the other thing that we need to say at the very beginning is that let's be reminded that the word of God is actually a mirror and not a looking glass. Mm -hmm. It's not a magnifying glass through which we examine the faults of others. It is a mirror that we hold up and we look at ourselves in. Mm -hmm. And we look into it to see ourselves and we look into it to say, Lord God, what are you saying to me? What is this reflecting back to me? What do you have to say to me? And so we ask you to, to listen to us today in that spirit. Husbands, as I speak to you, I'm speaking to you. Not to your wife, to you. And I pray that you'll hear it that way. And likewise, I'm sure with Elizabeth, with, uh, with the wives in our congregation as well. Oh, no, I'm going to talk to the husbands too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. That's right. <laughs> Next to loving like Jesus, that's rule number two. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> sorry, that was I'm unscripted. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> so the other thing I would just in this line, remember one of the things that we're saying, we're trying to get at the, at the very rub of the ethic here, of what it is to follow Jesus. And I mentioned that you know that we are a new creation. There's a new self, and that there is no selfish in the new self. Mm-hmm. There is no selfish in the new self. And so that's the thing to apply. When we look into the word of God and he shows us our selfishness and it is there, I have it. What the word of God is trying to do, what the spirit of God is trying to do is say, no, be more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. You're a new creation. You're better than that. Yeah. Be more than that. There is no selfish in the new self. And we bring that into our marriages as well. We're going to have communion next. I'll invite the ushers to come forward because in this idea of looking into the Word of God as a mirror to let it examine us, that's very much what we see Paul describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he talks about the celebration of communion. And he says this uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 29. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So a person ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul was talking to the Corinthian church here, which had had huge factions. They had all kinds of problems. They were divided ethnically. They were divided economically. And and the factions within the group were were just completely disrespecting one another. There There was no unity, no care going on at all. And Paul was saying, no, you can't have that. You need to think about it. You need to examine yourself. You need to ask yourself some questions. Because we all take of that same loaf, we all take of that same bread. Husbands and wives, we take of the same table. And Jesus died for each of us. And so when we take of the table, what we're asking us to do is examine ourselves and say, Lord, how much do I need this? Not how much does someone else need it. How much do I need this? How much have you done for me that's represented at this table? And that allows us to come to the table and to come to Jesus with a humble, contrite, teachable heart. 
because we recognize, I'm, I'm reading a book, I'll quote from it later, Philip Yancey's book, Finding God in Unexpected Places, and he, and he talks about grace, and he says, you know, he's the author of, of What's So Amazing About Grace, and he, and he says, you know, when it comes to grace, we are all debtors. There is only one giver. All the rest are debtors. There is none of us in this room who is not indebted to Jesus and what this table represents. Amen. That's our starting place. Amen. So let's prepare our hearts. Let's think about that. Let's ask ourselves some questions and let's come to the table. Mm-hmm. Would you pray for the elements, yeah. Elizabeth? Father God, thank you for loving us so much that you would choose to send your only son to die for us. That while we were yet sinners, you chose to send Jesus to die. Lord Jesus, thank you for your obedience to death, even death on a cross. Thank you that you emptied yourself and took on the form of a man, humbling yourself at the cross for us. Thank you that even though you didn't have to, even though there was no sin in you, you chose to bear the punishment for us because you love us that much and want us to experience you that much. We don't deserve it, but that's not why you did it. You did it out of your love. And so we thank you and we praise you for that this morning. Thank you for your body that was broken for us on the cross that bore the punishment, that endured the pain and the suffering on our behalf. And thank you for your blood that was poured out for us, that washes us clean, that establishes a new covenant between us and Almighty God so that we can be in relationship with you in a new and beautiful way and begin eternal life with you here now that will continue on in heaven one day. Our words can't properly express the gratitude or how worthy you are for our praise and adoration. So please take this offering of our remembrance of your sacrifice as a token of our thanks and gratefulness for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As Kevin mentioned, there's a clear directive in scripture and throughout Ephesians especially for us to be like Jesus in our lives and to pursue this life of love as we walk day by day here on this earth. And that includes in our marriages. Regardless of where we land in our interpretation of these verses, regardless of whether you think this is prescriptive or descriptive, whether you think it was cultural for the time or or something that should be happening right now, as we met together and talked about these verses and what we had Uh, had Jesus show us as we were studying them, we both came to the same place, which is that regardless of what interpretation you um, ascribe to with respect to things like headship and submission, the one thing that's constant that doesn't change is the reference point for our behavior in marriage, and that's Jesus and our relationship with him. So, Ephesians 5, 21 to 24. Submit one another to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church, of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is submissive to Christ, so ought wives to be to their husbands. 
In verse 21 of this passage, and again towards the end in verse 33, the concepts of submission and reverence that are um, being called out in wives are not meant to be things that are subservient or lesser than positions. Paul is inviting wives to use their relationship with Christ, a life-giving relationship that's typified by exclusivity, devotion, and honor, as a reference point for how to be with their husbands in marriage. And then he clarifies it further for us in verse 24 when he says that a wife's behavior is supposed to reflect the church's relationship and behavior towards Jesus. So if we're going to understand what Paul is asking of wives here in these verses, we need to be clear about what the church is asked to engage in with Jesus. And we know we are asked to be like him. We are asked to be uh, surrendered to Jesus and to seek to be more like him every single day through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what we are to be doing as wives in our relationships with our husbands, seeking to be like Jesus, submitted to Jesus, living like Jesus. There are lots of exhortations to the church in the New Testament that give us clarity about what that looks like practically, because that can sound sometimes hard to nail down. I picked Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Paul is calling wives to be like Jesus in relationship with their husband, where through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're striving to be like Christ above all else. Paul is exhorting wives that we're to take very seriously our responsibility to bring our Christ-likeness into our relationships with our husbands, that we are to be clothed with compassion and humility and kindness and patience, we're to be forgiving, we're to be forbearing, we're to pick to put on love every day so that we're bound together in unity with our husbands. That's what pleases Jesus. That's what being like Jesus in our marriage is meant to be. It's Christ and our love for Christ that's supposed to be our template, our role model, our motivation, and our reference point for how to be a wife. This is about living, as um, Kevin already said, it's about living a life of love, like Jesus, where we give of ourselves to another. So what does this look like if you're not both interested in being like Jesus in your marriage? If only one of you wants to be more like Christ, or if there's abuse. These verses are not meant to contemn anybody to an unsafe or abusive situation. Jesus does not mean or does not want you to be abused. And I would ask that if anyone is experiencing that um, in your relationship this morning, that you seek the support of the pastoral staff here. 
because Jesus doesn't want hurt and abuse in our marriages. That's not who he is or how he lived his life here on earth, and it's not what he wants for you either. But what about those times when only one of you seems to want to be like Jesus, abuse aside? I think we can look to Romans 12, 18 for what that's supposed to mean for us. If it's possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Like Kevin mentioned earlier about this being a mirror, not a looking glass. We're responsible for ourselves. As a wife, we are responsible for our relationship with Jesus and about being surrendered to the Spirit to be transformed with ever-increasing glory into his likeness through the power of the Spirit. That is our responsibility, not to transform our husband. We are to leave that transformation work to the Spirit in our husband. In my marriage with Todd, When he is being like Jesus to me, I am so drawn to him. And I want to be a good wife to him. I want to be responsive and to meet his needs. But that's not what the call on my role as a wife is, biblically. The call on my life is to be like Jesus to Todd regardless of whether he's being like Jesus to me to be as Christ-like in my life, including in my marriage, period. Not only when he does it for me too. So for husbands, we go on and I want to go back again to verse 21 and remind us that what Paul says to to husbands uh, falls under that principle of 521, of being submissive to one another in the fear of Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present her to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their own wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. The issue of of a husband's authority or husband's place in a marriage, as Elizabeth said, and I've said before, we can get into a debate, and these things are discussed, and we have different positions within the body of Christ about whether Paul is being prescriptive or descriptive. He, He absolutely had to be descriptive because that was the world that he lived in. The, the household structure that Paul is destru- describing had the, the, the man as the head of the household and everything flowed un- from under him. I will underscore that next week when we talk about slavery, which is the third example that Paul gives in this because that was part of the Roman household as well. And so that helps us understand that there's a, what Paul is talking about is, is very reflective of the culture he lived in. And then some will say, well, that's because that's what God intended, and that's where the debate comes in. But as, the, as Elizabeth was saying, the point is, it doesn't really matter which side of that issue you take a stand on, because the real point that Paul is saying here is not about the fact that the husband is the boss. The point that he's making is the husband is to love like Jesus loves. 
And whether we take that as, as Paul being, you know, descriptive or prescriptive of the household situation, that is universal. That is a principle that fits in with everything that he is saying, that the husband is to love his wife like Jesus loves the church. And the interesting thing is that Paul uses the word agape here in talking about love. And as we know from other you know, messages and studies, agape was a new a new word for Paul's day. It was a, a word that was coined by the Christians that existed, but it wasn't widely in use. It wasn't a concept of love that was understood or commonly used in that day. The idea of agape is this selfless, giving love that was new to Christians. Christians brought that to the empire and they brought that to their ethos to teach people to love like Jesus because that's the way that Jesus loved and demonstrated God's love. This giving of oneself away, this selflessness that is the characteristic of agape. And Paul's saying to the husbands, he's saying, love like that. Give yourself away. Love selflessly. And the thing about agape, and agape love is, is it's not earned or deserved. It has nothing to do with whether the person has merited it at all. That's the whole point about agape. It's, it's grace. It's not merited in any way whatsoever. So my, my role as a husband in loving my wife has nothing to do with whether I think Shirley deserves it. It doesn't. Because agape love gives it anyway. Deserved or undeserved. Merited or unmerited. Whether I feel like it or not, agape gives itself away. And Paul is saying to husbands, love like that. Love your, way, love your wives like that because that's how Jesus loves the church and that's what it is to live a life of love and give yourself up for others. Yeah. Shirley and I had our 32nd wedding anniversary on Friday. Woohoo! Yeah, thank you. She, she had to work today because of the rain yesterday. A function that she was at got changed to today, and so she's not here today. Um, but um, 32 years of marriage hasn't all been rosy. A number of years ago, we were in a pretty rough spot. There was a lot of stress in her work. There was a lot of stress in my work. There was a lot of stress in our home. The kids were struggling for their independence and we were struggling with what that meant and how to give it to them and how to help launch them and it was just a rough time. And I found myself pulling away. I found myself withdrawing from Shirley and withdrawing from my family and beginning to blame her and beginning to say, it's her problem, she can't cope, she can't handle it. She can't take the stress, she can't take it. And, and I began to just kind of remove myself emotionally from the situation. And as you can imagine, that only made things worse. It just made it harder for her and it made it, made it more anxious and more stressful and more difficult. And things were getting bleaker and bleaker. Now, I have a lot to learn. And I have a long way to go in my walk with Christ. But I give the Lord credit for this. He's got enough of a hold on me that he can get my attention when he needs to. Amen. And he spoke to me through these verses. I don't remember the context of what led me to read them, but I remember the impact and I remember what happened to me when I did. And Jesus said, Kevin, why have you stopped loving Shirley like I love you? 
I rattled off all of my excuses. And he said, why? None of those excuses matter. Why are you not loving her like I love you? And the light bulb went on in my head. And I repented and I, and I, and I went before the Lord and I said, you're right. You're right. The problem is me, not her, not the situation. It's me. I've stopped loving. Forgive me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and the love of your Spirit and help me, help me change. You know, when you turn your heart to Jesus, He changes your heart. He changes your heart. Surely didn't change. I did. But as I began to relate to her differently, as I began to recapture that love, as I began to act toward her the way that I was meant to act toward her as a follower of Jesus, she began to change. And our situation began to change. And our marriage began to change. And if she were here today, she would tell you, that we're in a much different place today than we were several years ago. And it's because of Jesus. It's very simple, but not easy. And you know what? Deciding to love your wife like Jesus loves and give yourself away for her is not a one-time decision. It's a decision that you have to make every single day. Yeah. Last weekend, we were doing some, some work around the house, and Shirley is a dynamo, right? She just, like, she just works, 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 works. And I reach a point where I'm done. And I knew what we were going to be talking about today, and I knew what I was going to be saying, and I reached that point where I stopped loving Shirley. Oh, <laughs> right? She had one more thing for me to do, and I was done. <laughs> and here it came again. Here it came again. You're going to get up in a week's time, Kevin, and you're going to tell your people and encourage them to love their wives like Jesus and give yourself away. Who cares what you want or think, Kevin? Give yourself away. Do it for her because of Jesus. Every day. It's a daily thing. It's a daily journey. I am far from perfect, but it's a daily journey. The other thing I want to mention before moving on in this is the fact that because it's a daily journey, it never stops. This is a timely message for those of you who are older. For those of you who are, are seniors in our congregation who come from a generation where perhaps you know, a bit of patriarchy and a bit of the husband being the head of the wife is more of the norm than maybe some of the younger generation here. And so you've got that dynamic, and I'm not going to criticize that or whatever, but, but it doesn't stop for you older husbands. The command to love your wife like Jesus loves the church and give yourself away for her doesn't stop just because you're 80. It never stops. You're called to give yourself away for her until you're done. Until you're done. So whatever that looks like in your situation, whatever that looks like in your context, don't ever let yourself get to a place where you think that she's there to serve you. You're there to serve her. That's what Jesus said. 
He said, you call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for that's who I am. And I am among you as one who serves. And if we're going to love our, li- our wives like Jesus loved the church, we must serve them with all we have, with all we bring, until the day we die. That's what these verses say. That's what it calls us to. That's what it is to live a life of love like Jesus and give yourself away as a husband. He goes on then to say in verses 31 to 33, for this reason, he goes back and quotes Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is great. And I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each of you without exception should love his wife as part and parcel of himself and a wife should revere her husband. But he says this mystery is great. You know, this is one of the passages where the Roman Catholics get the, the doctrine of marriage as a sacrament, as something more than just a human institution, a human and divine blending together. Because from the very beginning, God had in mind this amazing union of husband and wife that they were, it was going to be blessed, it was going to be awesome, it was going to be incredible. It was God's intent. And it was so wonderful that Paul even uses that to describe the relationship between Jesus and the church. This marriage is so amazing and wonderful and worth fighting for and worth holding on to. Not enduring, preserving, Mm -hmm. pouring ourselves into as Christ just like Christ. I want to share this quote here from Philip Yancey in this book I mentioned earlier. He says this. He says, Every marriage has crisis times, moments of truth when one partner or both is tempted to give up, to judge the other undependable, irrational, untrustworthy. Great marriages survive these moments. Weak ones fall apart. When divorce happens, tragically, both partners lose out on the deeper strength that comes from riding out such stormy times together. Great relationships take form when they are stretched to the breaking point and do not break. Seeing this principle lived out, I can better understand one of the mysteries of relating to God. Abraham climbing on the hill at Moriah, Job scratching at the boils in the hot sun, David hiding in a cave, Elijah moping in the desert, Moses pleading for a new job description. All these heroes experienced crises moments when they were sorely tempted to judge God as uncaring, powerless, or even malign. Confused and in the dark, they faced a turning point, whether to turn away embittered or step forward in faith. In the end, they chose the path of trust. And this is why we remember them as giants of faith. No one is able to be married for 60 years without learning this. Right? At some point, every marriage is going to be tried to the point where one or both partners feel like giving up. And it can be horrific. It can be terrible. I'm not diminishing that at all. My experience was nowhere near as bad as what some of you have had. And so I'm not here to judge or condemn or anything like that. I am here to say this. There is power in the blood of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the Holy Spirit. And when we rely upon Him to change us, good things happen. 
Dean, can you take us back to the Colossians 3, 12 to 14 uh, slide for a moment, please? So as wives, we hear that exhortation to husbands. And if you're like me, it tenders my heart and it warms my heart to think that that's what God wants for me in my relationship with my husband. And it's something that um, I think no woman is going to say, no, I don't want that from my husband. But let's remember what we are to receive and how we are to receive that agape love, how we're to receive our husband, even when he isn't maybe demonstrating that to us, with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, forgiveness, forbearance, forgiving as the Lord forgave us, that is often the hardest thing to do in a relationship with the person that you've chosen to spend your life with is to forgive them when they've deeply hurt you. And yet the Bible tells us that lack of forgiveness is a stronghold that can keep us bound and stuck, that can stifle what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us when we choose to lay that hurt and that woundedness down. And just for the husbands, it is for the wives that we have to pick to put on love every day to bind us in unity. The times when Todd and I have conflict and it's not going well are absolutely times when I am not living out Colossians 3 I with him. That's his fault, those well. times. But... I've already gone oh, off script bad. once. That's I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> But I can look at every single argument that we've had, every single conflict that we've had, and I can see where I didn't demonstrate one or more of these things in the midst of that conflict. Because I'm human. Because I'm still being sanctified. But when I go away in those moments of fighting and those arguments that we have, and I ask Jesus to usually first help him, and then help me, <laughs> He shows me the places where I am not being as I am to be. And I have to pick him over me. Because when I pick him over me, I'm picking him mm -hmm. over me. Jesus' blueprint for relationships is meant to reap the most beautiful of rewards. And his blueprint for relationships is him. The more Jesus-like we are, the more relationship-ready we are. Because the more the fruit of the Spirit is going to be in us, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you are in relationship with someone who is exuding those fruit of the Spirit, it is a much more satisfying, enriching relationship. So the call on our lives is to be that person who is overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit in relationship. And it doesn't just have to be a marriage relationship. What about all of you who are here this morning who aren't in a marriage? Does this not apply to you? Absolutely not. It totally applies to you. The call on your life is the same. Just because Paul used this example of marriage to talk about what it's like to be in relationship doesn't mean you're excluded from it. 
The call on your life is to be like Jesus in every relationship you have, friendships, family member relationships, co-workers, neighbors, roommates. Whatever the relationship is that you have with another person, this applies to it. I don't know about you, but I can think of some relationships I do far better at than others in exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit, in exemplifying Jesus and his love to that other person. Like Kevin said, the principle is the same. Live a life of love like Jesus and give of yourself to another. Yeah, it's about imitating Jesus' way of love over and over and over again in every circumstance and in every relationship. We're talking specifically about that of husbands and wives. But it's, it's the basic ethic for how we live in relationship with one another, period, no matter who we are. Mm-hmm. You want to go ahead? talk about that? Oh, uh, no, I think we're past that. All right, we're past that. <clears throat> I'd be going backward. Would you? Okay. So this is new, us doing this together like this. um, Seamless. 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 (laughs) Ever since Easter, we've just been seamless. Yeah. (laughs) So Jesus wants to bring beauty from ashes. That's why he came, right? He came to make all things new. And not only one day in heaven, but here on earth right now. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up because we want to spend a couple of moments pursuing that beauty from ashes, pursuing him making things new in relationship. Jesus wants his perfecting, healing presence to permeate every aspect of our lives. And so we're going to take a few moments of quiet right now and invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to shine his holy light of truth on the relationships that you have in your life. Ask him to show you what ones are the ones where you are being Jesus, so you know to keep doing what you're doing. But also ask him to show you the ones where there's a need for more of Jesus to take over more of you so that the relationship can be more what he wants it to be. And for those people who are married here this morning, we would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to shine his holy light of truth on your marriage, to show you if there are places where you could be transformed more into Jesus with your spouse. We just add that while you're thinking about this, it's important to remember that if, if what you've heard today as a husband or a wife or, in, or where maybe you come from a broken marriage or maybe you're divorced and remarried, where, I don't know, whatever you're saying, if, you, if you've heard this as judgment and condemnation, you need to know that that is not from the Holy Spirit. Agreed. That is not what he's, he's about. That's not what he's doing. That's from somewhere else. Just get rid of that right now. Mm-hmm. You might very well be hearing it as conviction. That's a different thing. That is from the Holy Spirit. Just as that experience that I described in my relationship with Shirley, at one point when I opened myself up to the Holy Spirit, he convicted me of my need to change. And he might be doing that to you right now. And if so, receive it. Be open to it. Welcome it. Let him in. 
But one of the things that I have always found is when the Holy Spirit is working on you, you might feel, you might feel rebuked, but you will feel loved. Yeah. You will feel loved. If you're not feeling loved, it's not of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So just reject that. Just take a moment now and ask the Holy Spirit. And if he's telling you there's things to confess, confess those things. If he's showing you that there's things you need to forgive, through the power of Jesus, choose to forgive those things. the Holy Spirit to do his healing work in that place where he has shown you that more of him is needed. Mm -hmm. Ask him to bring beauty from those ashes, to restore what the locusts have stolen, to make not just that relationship new, but to make you in that relationship new, more like him for his glory. Let's remember what the Word of God tells us, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that He, when we confess our sins, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is about the new life that we have in Jesus. This is about the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. This is about a new beginning perhaps, in our relationships that we have. So I'm going to ask you all to stand, and I'm just going to pray over all of you and the relationships that you have brought before him, and then we'll sing one more song, and Kevin will come up and send us after that. Lord Jesus, thank you for your power, for this new life, for the beauty from ashes that you bring. I pray for each person here this morning and the relationships that you have entrusted them with, that you would come through the power of your Holy Spirit and transform them into exactly what you have always meant for them to be, for your glory. I ask that you will guard the hearts and minds of each person here in you, Christ Jesus, that the enemy of our souls would not be allowed to accuse or condemn 
and that we would all be able to leave here this morning clinging to the promise that you have given us, that our sins are gone, that we've been set free, and that this new, beautiful, sanctified life where we are clothed with your righteousness includes our relationships and includes the places where we, have feel, we feel as though we have failed. Please fall upon us, Holy Spirit, with your power and with your presence and do your transforming work in each and every one of our hearts so that we leave transformed with our faces aglow with having met with you and experienced your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.